for our first message today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled Carnal versus Spiritual Perceptions. Excuse me. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today, as it always is. Uh, just wanted to kind of take a few minutes real quick before we started. Uh, last week we had the... Here we go. Sorry. Last week we had the feast reports, and uh, of course we heard a lot of different uh, stories, things, uh, activities that people went on. Uh, people going to San Antonio, people going to Canada with uh, Lawrence and, uh, and Janice. And uh, I went to Branson, as many of you did. And uh, I didn't get a chance to do a feast report last week because I, I had a lot going on. And we had, I think, probably ten different groups, it seemed like, that were reporting on what was going on in Branson. Uh, but I did want to kind of share a little story because I thought it was quite humorous. And uh, one of the highlights uh, of my feast... Uh, for me, and I'm sure much, much more for the Andrews family, was seeing all of the Andrews in one location for the first time again in many, many years. Now, some of you that go back a long time in this church, in this congregation, uh, remember John Andrews. Uh, and me and John were uh, around the same age. And we literally, I mean, you could probably talk to some people. I, I think we terrorized this place. In fact, John, I was talking to Steve. John's the only guy that has ever, only kid that has ever been able to clear out the Tulsa Church of God. <laughs> literally, with having uh, found some, uh, you know, one of those pepper sprays that are on keychains sometimes. Well, someone had left that on a pew one day, and John thought it would be interesting to see what would happen if you would spray that stuff. And I haven't ever been exposed to pepper spray, but what I have heard, that is an extremely strong smell, and I think the church had to pretty much uh, air out this building for about 30 minutes, and everyone uh, eat half the potluck. Now, I don't know if it was a potluck day outside. But the story goes, uh, I was at the feast, and I didn't get a lot of time to talk with all. I mean, we were all very busy, but uh, me and John did get a chance to have a little conversation uh, one day at church. And we were outside of, you know, the meeting hall area where people sat down. And me and John, we were reflecting back about our childhood and the church and all the different things we used to do and how wild we were and how much energy we always had. And Miriam would love this. I know she's not here yet. But at that same time we were having this conversation, my two-and-a-half-year-old Asher was running around, came out of a room or something, whatever. It just it happened where all of a sudden you saw this two-and-a-half-year-old just flying around, and he goes, is that your kid? And I said, yeah. He goes, makes sense. <laughs> so that was my feast report. I mean, obviously a lot of other things happened, but I wanted to make sure that I shared that. Uh, I, I think that we almost, uh, we almost gave Miriam a heart attack on a weekly basis while we were here. Well, the title of my message today is Carnal versus Spiritual Oppressions. Or not oppressions, excuse me, perceptions. Perceptions. Carnal versus spiritual perceptions. And obviously, we live in a world that is full of people with carnal perceptions. I mean, you could just think, I mean, I don't know exactly what would happen, but I'm sure that maybe you've been exposed to, you know, opinions on certain matters that are very worldly. You know, I've heard, you know, a long time ago before I was married, I had a friend, a good friend of mine, and he was very perplexed why me and now my wife Katie didn't live together before we got married. 
He thought that was so strange. Why wouldn't you want to live with someone? Well, you're going to get married to somebody, live with them for the rest of your life. Why wouldn't you, you know, try it out first? That was a carnal perception. That was a carnal perception. And I think we can point to many other examples in our society where we can see, you know, there are many different things that people perceive in the world from a carnal perspective. Today I would like to take a quick look at some of the highlights of one group of people that had some carnal perceptions. Not because they're the only ones that did, but because they were humans. They were human beings and they were in the carnal state. And that is the early history of Israel. The early history of Israel. Now, I have two main points today, and I'm just going to tell you what they are at the get-go. First, my first main point is that sometimes our solutions are wrong and don't work because we do not recognize the problem or the problems correctly. Let me repeat that. Sometimes our solutions are wrong and don't work because we do not recognize the problem correctly. My second main point is that sometimes our choices, our desires, our inclinations are in complete contrast to God's. So to start this out, I just want to kind of give us a review. Not that we need a review, but just put us in the right contextual frame of mind. If we were just to kind of try to do a little crash course on Israel's early history, we know that what happens is, you know, as the story goes, they're in this land. They're in bondage. God leads them out of bondage into the land of promise. They have to wander a wilderness for 40 years uh, because of the rebellion. And they enter into the promised land under the leadership of a man by the name of Joshua. And the way that Israel was governed in this very early historical era of their history is by means of judges. We have a book in the Bible entitled Judges. And that word actually entails deliverers, saviors, physical deliverers and saviors. And so what would happen is, is that during this era of Israel's history, before there was any king, Israel would essentially was organized into a federation of tribes. There was no central government per se. There was a priesthood. And every now and then, God would raise up a deliverer to deliver Israel from their enemies. And so if we were to look at the cycle, you know, the book of Judges is a wonderful book. I think it's a, it's a great book to look at to see the, the condition of human beings and how, you know, we go through these cycles. You know, we, we, we often don't learn from history. We don't learn from history. We should. But basically, when we look at the cycle that takes place in the book of Judges, we see that basically it starts out with Israel going into apostasy. They start departing from God's ways. They start breaking the covenant that they had entered into with God. After this would happen, the second thing is that Israel would be chastised by God, either by military defeat or something else, by their enemies. Then Israel would repent. They would realize that they were wrong and they would try to get back to be in right standing with God. Then God would raise up a deliverer, raise up a judge. And that judge would lead the Israelites over their enemies, once again, restore them to where they were. And then things would be peaceful until all of a sudden the process would repeat itself. 
And so scholars and historians look at the book of Judges and they identify this cycle repeat itself several times. In fact, the last verse of the book of Judges, in Judges 21, verse 10, says this, which epitomizes the state that Israel was in in this early history of its uh, early history of this nation. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so goes the story, so often, of the nations, empires, kingdoms of world history. Now, let's turn over to 1 Samuel, the fourth chapter. We're going to kind of skip through the history of Israel a little bit. But we're in the very early part. This is what we call like the pre-monarchy phase of Israel's history. It's 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. We see that right here in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel is going up against one of their chief enemies, one of their chief rivals, the Philistines. And it says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in a battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And so right here in the early part of the book of 1 Samuel, we're not that long after, we're still in the judges period. There's no king in Israel. We have a high priesthood. We have a priesthood. We have a high priest by the name of Eli in this period of time. And then we have this young man by the name of Samuel that God is beginning to lead to be a prophet. And the question happens right after this event. The elders come together in Israel after they're defeated by the Philistines. And they're saying, what's going on? Why did this happen? Why did we lose? And the proposed solution was this. Hey, this is what we're going to do. Go over to Shiloh and roll out the Ark of the Covenant. Bring it over here to the battlefield. In 1 Samuel 4, verse 3, it says, That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so if you were an Israelite during this time, and, and, you, and I'm sure not all of them maybe agreed with what was going on, and there was ne not necessarily anything wrong. This was something common. Sometimes they would take the Ark of the Covenant into the battlefield. But there's something that's interesting in this story. And that is, when we look at it, there is an absence of several things. Number one, there's no repentance. There's no discussion of turning to God and asking Him for advice. There's no seeking out the prophet of God, Samuel. There is none of these things going on. And it seems that Israel thought that all they had to do was roll out the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield and surely they would be victorious over the Philistines. The contrast is, it's how the Philistines perceived this. They knew about Israel. They had heard about the stories about how God, the gods, which they believed were many, of Israel, had happened to strike down the Egyptians with plagues, defeated the Egyptians with all these different wonders. And when we read the story from the Philistine perspective, what we see is the Philistines saying, oh my goodness, these gods are big time. Men, you better get ready. You're getting ready to go up against the gods of Israel. But let's continue on. Let's fight like men and be valiant. Let's be heroic. So 
literally what we see in the story is, is that Israel, believing in or having a false sense of security, and the Philistines, they're actually taking it more serious because they know what they're up against. And the results of the battle were this. The Philistines still the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. The Philistines still the Ark of the Covenant from the Israelites. And we know that the Ark of the Covenant is the chief symbol of God's presence and the people's identity. It was the most sacred object in Israel's, uh, Israel's possession. It, it stood in the most holy of holies in the temple. And an interesting thing to consider is this. Here they are with the Ark of the Covenant, bringing it out to the battlefield, the most holy symbol of all. And yet there's no example, there's no evidence that Israel was trying to live up to the holy standard in which this Ark of the Covenant symbolized. Another result was 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel were slaughtered, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were killed in the process. At this time, Eli, the high priest, was said to be the one that was judging Israel. And 1 Samuel is not very pleasant as far as what they have to say about Eli, especially with the crookedness that his sons were involved in. And during this time, there was also a man who ran back to Shiloh, ran back to where the tabernacle was, ran back to where Eli was, and told Eli and the people about the news of Israel's defeat by the Philistines. And when we read that story, it's very interesting because the one thing that Eli is looking out for is he wants to know what happened to the ark. How is the ark doing? Not about the sons, but about the ark. His sons, your sons are dead. Yeah? What about the ark? The ark has been captured by the Philistines. And as soon as that happened, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18 says, As soon as he mentioned the ark of the covenant, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel 40 years. This was a low point in Israel's history. In fact, Eli's daughter-in-law was pregnant during the time. The daughter-in-law of one of the sons that had just been killed, uh, of Eli's, was pregnant at the time. And it says during this time that she gave birth to a son and named him Ichabod. That's a strange word to us, but it actually has meaning, as many of the Hebrew names do. And this word means glory is gone, or this name, glory has departed or is gone from Israel, which epitomized the period of time that Israel was involved in. Now, if we read on to the story, we know exactly what happens. The Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant, put it in their temple, put it against their God, or beside their God, Dagon, and all different types of plagues come upon the Philistines. And eventually, the Philistines had enough, and they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. Because they don't want to have anything to do with these punishments that are coming upon them by the God of Israel. And Samuel has a talk with the people and gets them to repent. And we're going to see that in a little while when we kind of come back to this. Uh, but what we see is, is that a time period goes by, and Samuel now is the judge over Israel. So, in Israel's response to their political problems, if we continue on in the story, after the death of Eli and his sons, it ushers in a time period where Samuel, the person in whom this, these first two, uh, or these two historical books that we're looking at is named after, becomes the primary judge, deliverer 
of the ancient Israelites. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, it says this. It says, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, to Gilgal, to Mizpah, and judged Israel on all those places. But he, was, he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. But here is something that's interesting. Samuel now is getting older in age. And he has a couple sons himself, like Eli did. And there was a problem with these two sons. The scripture tells us that he made his two sons judges over specific areas. Not judges in, like he was a judge, like a deliverer, like a prophet, but someone who would do just your typical political, you know, you know making decisions on certain matters of the people. The problem was is that his sons were crooked, kind of like Eli's sons were. It says that they took bribes, they perverted justice, obviously, for monetary gain. And this is such a familiar tale in mankind's story of politics. At this point, the last thing Israel needs is more corrupt leaders like that of Eli's two sons. I don't want to be too negative, but I think that many of us can identify with this. Something that we can understand very well. I mean, we're, we're used to this happening in our own political system. How often do we hear of the shenanigans of politicians who commit fraud and literally take bribes from big corporate lobbyists? Which goes on all the time. We understand that people in positions, positions of leadership, there is a great temptation to do such things. Oftentimes, it's because it's the ones in which the bribes are being transacted upon are the ones who put the person in power in the first place. And this seems to be the basis of why the elders of Israel come to Samuel and ask him the question that they ask him right after this. It says in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, verse 4 and 5, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now notice the reasoning of the elders. I think some of us could probably understand the elders. They're thinking, Samuel, you're getting old. You're not going to be around forever. And your sons are corrupt. And there's not going to be anyone left in positions of leadership. What's going to happen when you're gone? Your progeny is not going to cut it. And they wanted to conform to the rest of the nations. In this period of time, the nations in which they faced, small bands of city-states, small regional empires, they all had kings. And Samuel takes this as a rejection. But God tells him something. He says, Samuel, don't let this bother you. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as king over them. And if we think about that, if we think about what God was to the people of Israel, we look at the language that's used all throughout the scriptures, we see that God was a king to Israel and was supposed to be their king. Exodus 23:23 talks about God going before, going behind protecting Israel from their enemies. The same thing that kings or people look to kings to do. Deuteronomy, the 33rd chapter, verses 1 through 5, 
God is called the king. He's the king over Israel. He is the one who has established the covenant with the people. And a historical note, and some things that historians have kind of noticed, is that the same language that's in the book of Exodus, the book of the covenant, the same language about Israel entering into a covenant and agreements is a similar language that it was used during the period of time of this day that kings, or treaties that kings would make between them and their subjects. And so when Israel entered into a covenant, they understood that God was going to be their God, but God ultimately was going to be the one to go before them. Not men. Yes, they had men leaders. Yes, they had people that God had raised up, but it was ultimately God who was the one delivering them from their enemies. Now, in my opinion, I don't have a bell, uh, but I don't think that there was necessarily anything wrong with wanting a king. Does it mean that I'm disagreeing with Scripture? By no means. I think that the problem was, was with their attitude in which they approached this idea of having a king. And the reason I say that is, is because we do see provisions, like in the book of Deuteronomy and other places, even in Genesis, that there is provisions that Israel would have a king. We know that there are actual provisions about, hey, when you have a king in the land and when you desire one, these are the things that he's going to need to do. These are the requirements for a king. We also know that the scepter or the royal throne would eventually belong to Judah. The problem, rather, was the attitude. The attitude. They didn't think that God's current plan of protection and security was enough, and in 1 Samuel, the 8th chapter, verse 20, is very telling. It reveals the motive for why Israel wanted a king. It says, no, talking when Samuel's trying to talk them out of, look, you're going to regret this. You're going to regret this wish that you want of a king. These are the things that this king is going to do to you. But Israel responds by saying, no, but we want a king over us, that we also may be, may be like the other nations or all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. People wanted the comfort of human protection over God's. And I also think this is an example of that first main point that I'm wanting to bring today, and that is people misidentified the problem. The nation of Israel, the elders, they thought that their problems were political, when really they were spiritual. Just to reiterate that main point, sometimes our solutions are wrong and don't work because we do not recognize the problem correctly, and in this case, I think, was what Israel was doing. They were forgetful of their history. Their political problems weren't because they didn't have a king. Their political problems was because they wouldn't repent. They didn't have the right mind. It was a spiritual problem. Looking back at the case of the Ark of the Covenant, when Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant into the, onto the battlefield, I was reading about this story, and I came across a, an author that wrote a book by the name of Looking on the Heart. His name is Del Ralph Davis, and I like the way he put this. He called this rabbit foot theology. You guys know what a rabbit foot is? When I was growing up as a kid, I remember like friends would have them, they'd be like on a keychain or something, there were these rabbit foots, and they go back to believing in like having good luck. You know, people would have them, hey, it's a good luck charm. And it almost seems that Israel was trying to relegate down 
the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm. Remember, remember what was absent in that section of Scripture. No mention of repentance. No mention of seeking out God in prayer. And I'm sure there were many men and women of God in this period of time that were. But it didn't seem like it was maybe the majority. Maybe it was the minority who were actually seeking out God's genuinely. And in fact, what's even more interesting of this story is something we haven't read, but something that happens after this. So when we look at the story, what we find is that we find the Ark of the Covenant stolen by the Philistines. You know, the bringing out the Ark of the Covenant to the battlefield, it didn't work. And we see the Philistines, they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they have their plagues, and they're like, okay, we don't want anything to do with this Ark of the Covenant, and they send it back to Israel. And then Samuel finally sets them down and says, okay, look, here's the deal. If you really want God's favor, he says in Samuel chapter 7, verse 3, he says, Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the land of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the bells and the asterisks and served the Lord only. Look what we have. Look what we got going on there. We have a nation who brought the Ark of the Covenant out to the battlefield, wondering why they were defeated, thought that this good luck charm was going to be the solution. They're thinking it's political. They're thinking it's, you know, there's something they're not... They don't have the right formula. They're not doing something. You know, a lot of times in this ancient Near Eastern period, a lot of the pagan cults around them, they kind of looked at their gods or their deities as like, you know, they had an ability to manipulate them into doing what they wanted them to do. But right here at the very end, Samuel's revealing that Israel has all of these idols and all of these pagan gods among them. And they weren't spiritually minded enough to understand what the real problem is. They seem to be making an idol out of the ark. Not because the ark is an idol, far be it, but because in the way they were approaching the idol. They were trying to make the idol to be an object like the other people around them, the Philistines themselves, how they made objects to be idols. They were going out, bringing out the most holy thing that God had provided the ancient Israelites. This sign of God's presence and their identity without any any uh, effort whatsoever to try to make themselves holy as this magnificent structure was holy. Can we identify with this? Can we identify with this? All of us have probably misidentified a problem, which most likely meant we came up with, this, without, with, with the wrong solution. And I have an example of this just in recent times. And a few months ago, well, probably about a month and a half ago, me and my wife Katie had a perplexing problem in our house. Uh, we were dealing with a weird issue, and it was literally like flies had taken over our house. And we, we couldn't understand it. And so we tried to figure out, I mean, is there, is there an opening in the house? Is there something going on? Uh, what's going on? So we did everything we could. That didn't work. So we called out an exterminator. And so the exterminator came out and sprayed my house, sprayed inside, sprayed outside, and we thought, well, okay, hopefully this will take care of it. Well, it didn't. Instead of having a couple hundred flying, swarming flies in the house, now we had a couple hundred flying, swarming flies in the house and a couple hundred dead flies on the floor. <laughs> and it was gross. 
And we didn't know what was going on until, by accident, one day, Katie's out in the garage, and she's doing something with the trash can. We have this table out there, and of course, you know, I think all of us have had those times where we just were in a hurry, and we set something somewhere, and it's covering up other things. And Katie had discovered that we had left, or somebody had left, I'm not claiming this, <laughs> that somebody had left a bag of potatoes in the garage that's probably been sitting there for how knows long. And on this bag of potatoes, a bunch of flies had a party, and a bunch of flies decided to procreate, and a bunch of thousands of microscopic flies had basically came from this bag and I guess this party and were being able, because they were so small, to get into natural cracks or creases in our foundation. And that was the problem. But initially, we, I misidentified the problem. We just thought that, hey, we're, there's a hole in here somewhere and flies are coming in. And I'm thinking, man, I mean, is really our house that interesting for this many flies to come in? I mean, yeah, we have food in here, but this was a, a, a very normal amount of flies. And so, I'm going to go ahead and close right here. And that's because I, I didn't have time to get to my, my second point. And I want to make sure that I don't go over, over time. And so, as we go back to that main point of misidentifying problems in our lives, I want us just to reflect on those things. Reflect on the nation of Israel and the examples that God has given us. You know, many of us have problems. And the world has all different types of solutions. All different solutions of you know, how we cure our, our money problems in our nation, how we cure our military or our, our problems abroad with different countries and, and different conflicts that we're involved in. And even in our personal lives, we can identify many problems that we have. And sometimes, because we are still carnal, we still have a little bit of that carnability in us, we still have a little bit of that old man that wants to come back every now and then. Sometimes we can convince ourselves that the problem lies in the wrong spot. When in fact, maybe there's something spiritual about it. So as I leave us today, and I'm having to kind of cut myself short, I just want us to reflect on those things. Reflect on those ideas, spiritual perceptions. And that's something that seemed like majority of people in Israel lacked in this period of time. They thought their problem was physical, was political. They had a carnal perception. Let us nurture that spirit that God has given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let us nurture that spirit so we can continue to grow in our spiritual perceptions in this world. Therefore, and that, so we don't misidentify problems that come upon us and mistake them for problems that aren't really problems.